what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. There's something very satisfying about feeling like even though the person is gone, they're still helping you to create, you know, what their life meant. I have come to find that the grief is a lot easier if you have something you're doing, fueled by joy and love. He just genuinely believed I could do anything. He believed I could do anything I set my mind to. And I think there's something magical about I'm going towards the things he loved, being willing to face my fears about remembering this traumatic event. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the executive director for Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And I want to welcome you to our February edition of the Keep Kids Alive podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Laura Carney, who lives in New Jersey. And she has a very unique story to tell about her father's bucket list. And without further ado, I'm going to welcome Laura to our conversation. And I always like to begin by inviting our guest to just talk about how she remembers our connection, either with Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 or me personally, as she remembers how that connection happened. Hi, everybody. I believe you and I met Tom after I discovered that someone was climbing Pikes Peak on behalf of my friend Pam O'Donnell's husband and daughter, Bridget who she lost. And I was really curious about it and being a runner and um, my husband now being a runner too, we kind of wanted to participate. So I think, I think that's how we connected. For our listeners who may not be aware every year, keep kids alive, drive 25. We host what we call our live forward weekend on Pikes peak in Colorado. And we invite runners from all over the country to join our team to honor loved ones who've died in traffic incidents by being part of this certified trail race to run, uh, which can be a relative term on a mountain uh, that's (laughs) 14,115 feet high, but to honor loved ones. And we bring families together from all over the country to uh, share in that experience, not necessarily to run themselves, but to connect with other families uh, and to share stories and make memories in a beautiful place. Hopefully, depending on how things uh, work out with vaccines and, and whatnot this year, We'll be back uh, on Pikes Peak for the 14th year running. And Laura and her husband, Steve, will hopefully be able to join us uh, for that adventure. Boy, I can't wait. I I just, I can't wait to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, if it's in August, so that also will be especially meaningful to me because my father died in August. And what date was that in August? It was August 8th. And I felt like he never let me forget it for the first few years after he died, because all of a sudden my mind became fixated. I started seeing 8-8 everywhere. Well, you know, speaking of your dad, I want to invite you to share your dad's story and how that has impacted your story. Well, you know, nobody ever expects that there will be some kind of tragedy coloring the life of one of their parents and you know, in, in our case, uh, my dad was killed by a teenager who was making a phone call at a red light. And then she uh, ran through the next one while he was turning left. Um, he was 54. I was 25. And my brother was 23 when that happened. I had just moved away from home for the first time for a magazine internship in New York. And it was just an event that really altered my perspective on, you know, not just my adult life, but but life in general. And I've really never been the same since, but 
I think the last couple of years I, I have uh, healed the most from it since after my husband and I got married about 13 years after my father's death. I actually was dating my husband when he died, believe it or not. We were, we were together a very long time. I discovered my brother found my dad's bucket list, which he had written a little bit after I was born when he was 29 years old. And uh, I, I knew right away I needed to do it. Well, talk about that moment of discovering your dad's bucket list and you know, maybe highlight some of the things that he had written on there. I think that the old adage, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives, is very true. You know, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Carolyn Mace, but I just love her. She's one of my, one of my favorite um, speakers. She speaks a lot about spirituality and prayer. And she was saying the other day, when someone starts on a spiritual quest, typically they will have been doing something right before that happens, where they, they're kind of empowering themselves. For me personally, I had become a runner. I guess about three years before finding the bucket list. And really, I only did it just because it's what my coworkers did for fun. <laughs> I thought it was a little strange because I, it was used to people going to happy hour, but I had stopped drinking completely. Not that I was ever a heavy drinker, but I just didn't do it anymore. And I thought, well, now I have all this extra time to fill. So I'm going to take an art class and I'm going to run a 5K. And you know, then I really got bitten by the bug. Then it was, I'm going to do a half marathon. And then finally, I was going to do the New York marathon. So Around the same time, everything really just started changing in my life. And I discovered activism. I discovered what distracted driving was. And I started speaking in schools. I started talking about my dad's death, which, you know, that was something I had really kept very private for a long time. It was really just, it was helping me a lot that I was able to speak to students and, and turn this like tragic thing into something meaningful. And something that was able to help people, but I was beginning to feel a little bit frustrated because, you know, I, I had met some great people doing the distracted driving advocacy. And really I was kind of balancing two worlds because I was still working as a magazine journalist. Um, I'd been working at Good Housekeeping for about five years then. And I was doing marathons, uh, raising money through my running. I was writing articles. You know, I wrote one for the Washington Post. I was helping other people write articles. But I always just kept getting this sense of like, this isn't what my dad was about, you know, like talking about his death isn't, it doesn't really capture who he was as a person. And also it was interesting because the more I did it, the less angry I felt about his death because I was starting to heal. I think I was starting to feel like some acceptance that this had happened in my life. So by the time the list emerged, I just was prepared. I think I, I felt like this is my dad saying to me, this is who I was. This was what I cared about. These were my, it was 60 different dreams of his that he had. And it wasn't like, you know, people call it a bucket list, but it wasn't, you know, he knew he was going to die. So he better get his life in order. It was, no, he was a 29 year old person <laughs> who just had had a child. And I assume started thinking differently about his life and started really valuing it and thought these, this is what I would love to experience. I mean, the top of the list is things I would like to do. And I just knew immediately, my husband did too. He's like, Laura, this is your book. You need to do this. Because I really had been wanting to write something, you know, a little bit longer than a speech that would help people. Well, can you tell us about your dad? Uh, you know, maybe how you looked at him when you were a child and... And you mentioned you were 25 years old when he died. 
how you viewed him as, as you grew and have grown since. He was my hero as a kid. He just, he just was, was wonderful. He was a, a wonderful father. And we were, we were pretty close. I would say we were kindred spirits in a way. I mean, I'm a writer. He was a writer. He, he's, he was very creative, you know, just a brilliant guy, photographic memory, knew like just about everything, but also an athlete. You know, he was one of those people, you know, those annoying people who like they do something and they're good at it the first time they do it. <laughs> he, he was like that, but also very philosophical, you know, very literary. And we would talk about books and writing all the time. More than anything, just really funny. Just, you know, he had that Irish wit and it would like catch you off guard, you know, and he was always just never took himself very seriously at all. It wasn't really until I was a teenager that I started feeling some feelings of resentment towards him because I was, gra- it was gradually starting to occur to me that my mom was really the financial provider in my family. My parents divorced when I was six. And um, I didn't really know why they divorced, just that, you know, it hadn't worked out. And I think they wanted to protect my brother and me. So they didn't really tell us what the reason was. But, you know, I kind of invented my own reasons for, for, for what it could be. And I just developed this idea that my dad was too much fun to stay with us. And my mom was too practical and therefore boring, which, you know, of course, isn't true. And. I just started developing these feelings, maybe of a low sense of self-worth because I couldn't understand, you know, why, like, why is he letting her pay for my education? For example, it didn't, it didn't occur to me then like, well, maybe his job security isn't great, you know, or, or maybe there's some reason I don't know about that is, is affecting, uh, maybe he's actually is genuinely trying, but he's just not in the same place my mom is. Cause you know, teenagers don't think about stuff like that. Since doing the list, though, I've just had this amazing experience where I've been able to forgive him for any of that, just because, you know, some of my list adventures have been pretty expensive. (laughs) So I have found myself in the position a few times where, boy, I'm really on the verge here of not having any money. And this is a crazy thing. I mean, I mean, I remember we went to New Orleans and, you know, I, I had like nine different freelance jobs at once because I wasn't working full time anymore. And I said to my husband, like, I don't know if I can afford to get home because someone hadn't paid me on time, you know, and that's the risk you take when you're doing freelance. I mean, we figured it out, of course, but it's, it's this thing where it's like, I've learned to look at myself in this totally different light. And because I'm doing that, I've, I've come to forgive him. I've come to understand some of the things that were motivating him in life that I didn't understand at the time. And I I just, I don't really care what anybody thinks about me anymore. And I think a lot of that when I was younger, when I was a teenager, that's what that was about. I just, you know, kids want to be accepted. They want to be like, I found a lot of comfort in this feeling of security that, that people liked me. And my dad was never, ever about that. (laughs) He was just a unique, original person. And I think I've definitely developed that more as I've been doing this project. Well, how did you, how did you come across the, the list in the first place? Uh, can you share that? Yeah, my brother found it. He had had it in a, in a little bag of my dad's possessions for 13 years. And he moved, he was, you know, he was going into a new stage of his adult life and he moved into a new house and his fiance said, you got to look in that bag because he really just hadn't. Hadn't looked in it. And, and I think that's, I think that's kind of representative of how we deal with traumatic death in a way. 
I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm never going to speak for him, but I know I personally, there were aspects of my dad's death that it was like, you know, metaphorically speaking, I just didn't want to look at that were scary for me. And, and I think doing these talks where I was telling high school students about the way he died, for me, that was like a baby step towards talking about it and facing it and accepting it as part of my life. So I do think a lot of people who, who experience traumatic loss go through something like that. But yeah, I was coming up to visit him with my husband to see his, his new house. And he, that was when he showed it to me. And what, what effect did that have on you when he, when he showed that to you? Uh, you know, what was your, can you remember your thought process at that time? There really was no process. Uh, the best thing I can compare it to is when I made the decision to move to New York after college to pursue journalism, which was really quite a crazy decision <laughs> to make. Someone told me last night, oh, that sounds like something your dad would do. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. But he was alive when I moved there. And he was the only person who was genuinely encouraging me to do it. So that makes a lot of sense. I just knew immediately. I just felt this gut instinct took over and said, you know, I have to do this. And and, I, and to be honest with you, I don't want to say if I encountered it earlier, because I did encounter it earlier. I actually did find it a week after he died. And I just looked at it briefly and saw, you know, talk with the president or correspond with the Pope and was like, oh, God, these are these like crazy ideas he would have. And I felt really embarrassed and I just put it away. I didn't even read the whole thing. So by the time I was 38, you know, newly married and really just that was a big trigger for me when my husband proposed just really missing him and, and regretting that he wasn't going to be there in person to walk me down the aisle. I was just in a different place. I just had a different understanding about life. So seeing it, I just knew right away. And, and, and the weirdest thing happened. I just, all of a sudden his face appeared in the back of my head, just smiling and nodding. Yes. You know, it was like, I just had this strong sensation that I was having this vision. And I mean, that's weird because that had never happened to me before. And like, that's like psychic stuff or something, but I mean, that really did happen. So how do you say no to that? You know? Well, I have a copy of the list and there are 60 <laughs> items on the list. So it's, it's quite an extensive list. You know, so my question is, you know, how did you come to make this list your own? And, you know, was there a, a starting point on this list for you that something that jumped out and said, well, you know, this is something I could do or this is something I can. Oh, yeah. yeah. The running one, of course. Right. OK. I mean, you're, you're a runner. You understand that. Mm -hmm. How long have you been running, by the way? <laughs> 40, almost 44 years. <laughs> okay. You see, you're, you're a lifer. <laughs> yes. Well, I tell people when I figure out when I'm running away from, then I'll stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the running for me, I really think the reason that kind of spurred everything into action is because, and I think you and I have spoken about this before. There's something about, and I re that's why I really love that your organization talks about li living forward. Because there's something about that forward m movement, you know, the motion of running that helps you to work through feelings. And that includes grief. So I was really into running at that point, And I mean, I still am. And I just saw run 10 miles straight. One really popped out for me. And, and I actually at that time had I'd already registered for the L.A. Marathon. Like that very week I had registered for it because the election had just happened. And I was I was someone who voted for 
Hillary Clinton and I was disappointed that she lost. And I, someone had said to me, use your disappointment for something good. So I thought, okay, I'm going to raise money for Girls on the Run, which is a, a nonprofit that helps teach running to preteen girls. And I just was going to do it through the LA Marathon. And, and I just said, okay, well, how about I run 10 miles straight? And then for the remaining 16, I'll just do a run walk combination, you know? And then I, I told my best friend who lives in Los Angeles about that. And she was like, okay, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, like if you don't walk it off for those first 10 miles, you're going to be so tired that like, I don't know. How, Cause I had never run 10 miles straight. I usually do a combination of running and walking. So in the end, what happened was I found out you could do it relay style and she did it with me and she wasn't even a runner. She, I just, you know, she'd run a 5k and like walked a half marathon and that was it. It was really quite awe-inspiring to see her do this and, and to see her love it. And we just, she did the first half and I did the second half. So literally you were off and running with this list. <laughs> yeah. That's how they'd say it in a magazine article, right? <laughs> when you think about what you've checked off so far, and I think your dad had checked some things uh, off on this list, uh, you know, prior to you acquiring it, you know, what are some of the things that stand out about, you know, what your dad was able to check off and kind of how he's passed the relay baton on to you, so to speak? Uh, to keep the list going. Well, he passed off on a great record collection. That makes a lot of sense. That's true. He did have a great record collection. He he just loved music and he was a singer. He checked off, uh, helped my parents enjoy their retirement, which I thought was really sweet. I mean, a lot, a lot of the list items are very sweet. They're very about his family, you know, like uh, make my wife feel happy, healthy, pretty and young every day of her life. I think that's a really beautiful one. Um, help Laura win a scholarship. There's, there are ones that, you know, I consider that one to be, you know, I, I consider my scholarship to be, I actually was laid off from my job uh, in the second year of doing the list, which, you know, there's always something that happens that is just shocking. <laughs> like, like, oh, maybe this wasn't a good idea to do, to do this project because it's just so like, troubling some of the events that happened. I mean, and one, one thing that happened was I was trying to check off the tennis list item, beat a number one seat at tennis. And I got injured the first day on the court and then later had to get foot surgery and was on the couch for two months. And, you know, what I've come to understand is that each of these list items, you know, they're not all just going to like work out in an afternoon. They're, they're, they always come with a lesson in some way. And, and that was part of why I felt like, okay, this really needs to be a book because I just think life is like that in general, you know, things that we think are terrible end up being the best thing that ever happened to us. And I sometimes think, well, these lessons are things my dad would have experienced had he done these things himself. And instead I get this great good fortune that either happening to me. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's how I've kind of made it my own in that, you know, it's, it's, this is what it's really helped me to do more than anything is it's helped me to remember who he was as a person and I feel like I have his spirit guiding me with with everything that I do. So, you know, even something that feels especially daunting, like skydive at least once. Or I mean, swim, swim in the width of a river. That was that was pretty terrifying at one point, actually, because the current was so rough. What river was that? Oh, it was the French Broad in North Carolina. I just thought it seemed like you should be in the South <laughs> if you're going <laughs> to swim the width of a river. Because my dad loved Mark Twain. And, you know, I'm always trying to piece together, like, what, you know, where did he come up with this one? 
But I remember standing there in the middle of that river and just praying, you know, like let these waters be calm <laughs> or something. And all of a sudden they, they did calm down and I was able to get across it. And I just always developed this very strong faith that I never would have had before when I'm doing these list items that I think very much is coming from him because I remember this is how he was with me when I was a kid. He just, boy, you're going to make me cry, Tom. (laughs) He just genuinely believed I could do anything. He believed I could do anything I set my mind to. And I think there's something magical about, you know, I'm, I'm going towards the things he loved going towards his dreams, being willing to face my, fears about remembering this traumatic event that was his death and us and also you know, my parents divorce and other traumatic events in my own life. Having the courage to do that has somehow just loosened its hold on me, um, the trauma. And instead I'm making room f- finally for these memories of him being alive and and how he viewed me as a person. And and it's like, you know, it does make me feel like, okay, I can't fail. Like I'm going to make it across this river. I'm probably going to survive this skydiving because what I'm doing here only has pure intentions. It's only about doing something for love. It's a reminder for me. Uh, I always say that uh, my parents, one of the greatest gifts that they gave me is that they never told me that there was something that I couldn't pursue. Right. And, yeah. and it wasn't something like they said, go do this. But it's like, <laughs> but to me, you know, I took that as anything is possible. And, you know, it was uh, a great gift that I don't know if there was intent about that, but whether there was intent or not, it happened. That's a great gift in itself. And as you're talking about memories, that's one of the things that uh, I've always shared with our own four children that whenever we would go on a trip, it was always about making memories. We're not quite sure what the memories are going to be. We may have a destination in terms of a place we're going, but the memories are made along the way. And we have no idea. We have no idea what those will be, you know, whether we'll be, you know, trapped in a snowstorm on the uh, in the Sierras trying to drive down in Nevada and it takes six hours to go five miles or, or something like that. There's more to that story, but I'm not going to go. I would love to hear it. (laughs) Well, I I think, I think that's the meat of life. You know, I think that's what, that's what life, I mean, my dad always said life is lived in the little moments. Um, My dad or my brother loves that, that quote of his and the big shift in me, uh, I think, I mean, a couple things I've changed drastically doing this project these, these past, gosh, I guess it's been three, three years. Yeah. Three years now. I think probably the biggest shift in me is just my my definition of a successful life and, and what you're describing to me right now. That's what it is. It's just these moments of connection with the people we love, because when you're gone, I mean, that's that's what your legacy is. It's it's how you touched other people. It's not, you know, how much money did I make? You know, what was what was I successful at? And, you know, when I was 25 and this happened and I think this is a very uniquely young person's problem, actually. I just was in this mode of, I need to prove myself to the world. You know, like, like, what am I? I need something to prove to me that I matter, that I'm good at something. And I remember thinking, God, my dad died and he probably was unhappy with, with his achievements in life because, you know, he was creative and he was always going from one job to the next and one new idea to the next. And he was a writer, but the book he had written hadn't been published. And 
you know, he used to tell us all the time these ideas he had for like TV pilots, you know, <laughs> and I would just be like, hi, can't you be normal? <laughs> but in retrospect, now that I've been finishing these dreams that went unfinished, which I think when I was 38 and found the list, I still had a little bit of that in me. I still had a little bit of boy, he died not being you know, successful, not having accomplished what he wanted. Now that I've been doing them all and, and it really has afforded me these wonderful opportunities to connect with both people I already love and and new friends, people who just show up to help me. I've come to understand, no, my dad did die successful. He did die feeling like he had a wonderful life because everybody loved him. He really authentically connected with everyone he met. You know, he used to say to me all the time that my brother and I were the best thing he'd ever done. And I had this what like this lunch with him, I guess a few months before he died, before I moved to New York, where he said to me that someone had told him they'd run into my brother or me and how kind we were. And he just said that was what made him the proudest of us. Because I, I think that that's probably the hardest thing to do as a parent is to raise children who you feel like are genuinely kind to other people. And, and you're just proud of who they are as a person, not so much like, you know, what what they've accomplished in the world. So I think he'd be very happy to hear me saying this right now that 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 is what I finally learned that life is all about. I'd like you to talk about your book that's coming out of, of this, you know, living the list and, uh, you know, how the idea for the book came about. I mean, I realize the list influences that and everything. But then, uh, you know, a couple of maybe attendant questions based on what you've shared is, well, you know, who are some of the people who have uh, been companions with you along the way of living out the list? I mean, my husband more than anyone. And, and it's interesting because when, when I started the project, since my brother gave it to me, I had this idea that this was going to be like my brother and his future wife. They got married a few weeks later. And my husband and me and the four of us would just be going on all these adventures together. And I don't think I understood at that moment in time that everybody goes through grief differently. You know, and, and these things I needed to repair in, in how I experienced my dad, he didn't need to repair. And, and he didn't feel that urge to do this that, that I felt. You know, he said to me, I'm, I'm supporting you 100% in what you're doing. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. He's always been like my biggest fan with my writing. But he just didn't feel like he needed to be on this journey, you know, leading it the way I did. He has helped with a few list items. But that was a big lesson for me because I, I realized like, and I think this happens a lot to, to children of divorce. I was a little bit codependent with my brother because, you know, as your kids growing up, you have two families and we were always kind of shuffling between my mom and my dad. So my brother was my one constant. And I think I just needed to develop my identity more and an understanding of who I was and that it was indeed actually okay to do something my brother wasn't involved in all the time, you know, include like that was about my dad. So, and honestly, like, I think him even giving me the list, I mean, if that had never happened, I wouldn't even be doing it. So that's probably one of the biggest contributors to it. My husband, uh, I think it's quite poetic that he ended up being the person who is my main list helper because, you know, when my dad wrote the list, 
my mom saw it and she loved it and thought it was incredible because she adored my father, but she also was a little bit concerned about, about it because it's like some of the, the list items were like, go to Paris and go to London. And, you know, they had just had a kid and they were living in suburban Delaware. So it was like, let's think about our practical concerns here too. You know, my dad was never, he was never one for practical concerns. <laughs> so to have my husband do it with me, it really, you know, even though as I've talked to my mom about it a little bit more the past couple of years, I understand that my my experience of who she was and who my dad was was a little bit misinformed. But to have just started on this this marriage and have my husband be a hundred percent in with my doing this, it healed this this fear that I had. Because I really believed if you get married, you might get divorced. Who knows why? It's not gonna be explained to you why the person will just leave. And you might lose your identity a little bit because now you're part of this unit and you're not just like your own person anymore. And I, I just had these fears about like, well, my husband's now going to expect me to be this real wifely kind of person. <laughs> and, you know, I've never cooked. I've never been, despite working for good housekeeping, I'm not the most domestic person in the world. <laughs> and it just wasn't who I was. And he would be like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm marrying you because of who you are and because I love you. And, you know, I just want you to be more of you. And doing this list certainly has helped that to happen, helped me to understand that that, you know, that's what it's all about. And uh, he's just encouraged it. And, and I, th I think he would probably say that the list has also helped him to be more of him. You know, when, when I got injured with the tennis thing and I, I kind of had to take a step back from running, um, just coincidentally, he started developing a love of running at the same time and was he was out there doing it when I wasn't. And sometimes I feel like, well, boy, someone in our family had to be running, I guess. And it just, he was always kind of afraid that he couldn't be a runner because he has severe asthma. So he used to, you know, he would try to go out there and do a mile and he'd, he'd quit after a mile because he was afraid he couldn't keep going with it. But he just really developed this strong persistence and self-belief in it. And, you know, he just ran his first ultra in September, which for people who don't know, that's 31. Miles, wow. <laughs> not, not, not much. I mean, that's what two years later. And now we run together when the pandemic started. One of the ways we dealt with it was we uh, we ran every street in our town, which is 150 miles. And that was I'm, I'm running this thing about it now because that was quite an experience to be running with him because we're also very different kinds of runners. Um, who else? Uh, my mom has encouraged me and helped me a great deal. She's always asking me, okay, what's happening now and what's happening with the book and et cetera. That's been an amazing thing because, you know, right after the wedding, she wanted me to kind of focus on buying a house and starting a family and, you know, normal expectations for someone who just got married. And I wasn't sure I was there yet. I wasn't sure I wanted to do those things. And I actually, she had given us a wedding gift that was, um, a uh, good, uh, you know, a good amount of money. And I applied it to the list instead. And, and I was afraid she was going to be upset about that because, you know, she didn't like the idea of my dad going after these crazy dreams the first time. So, so why would she love it that I, now I'm doing it. And there was a little bit of rebellion there on my part too, but she said something so beautiful to me in my first year of doing it after she started really seeing, you know, I, I meant it. I was going to be doing this thing. I'm doing all these interviews and being published in magazines you know, she said, I understand now that this is your home. You know, this writing, this finding myself, this, this whole experience of repairing these wounds with my dad, like I had to do that. I had to pursue it. 
So she really got it. And, you know, my mom's just a sensitive person. So I think she's learned a lot too. She, she's even told me she feels more courageous in certain situations in, in her own life now. And she'll think about, well, what would Laura do? And that's so like amazing to me that, I mean, I think you've had that experience with your own children, right? Like being inspired by them. I could do a podcast on that probably at all. But one of the things I was thinking as, as you were uh, sharing is, uh, you know, I may butcher the lyrics, but it just was kind of reminding me of what I think was a Billy Joel song uh, of um, about home, you know, that home could be oh, the yeah. Pennsylvania turnpike. It's why wherever you are, you know, could be your home. And uh, so you're uh, you're making that connection. It kind of redefines home or maybe defines home in a, in a more particular way, in a way that uh, uh, might give us all pause to to think about what is home. Uh, and who is in our home? I wish I could go grab my photo album and in the family room of all my pictures of my husband that I gave him actually the very Christmas Eve that he proposed to me, like minutes before it, because it has that all the lyrics of that song written on the back of it. Oh, oh my. <laughs> this is not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you, that's what I call list magic. This kind of stuff. Oh, he, you know what? <laughs> How about that? You ask and God answers. He just brought it in. In case you don't believe me, there, here it is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was, uh, this was not planned audience. <laughs> yeah. Listeners. I mean, I, I call that kind of thing list magic all uh -huh. the time, just because these, these things happen, you know, these things happen with the list that it's like, how I can't understand how this possibly could have happened. And there's no possible explanation, but some kind of divine intervention that like, there's some wavelength that a person gets on who's talking to me about it or working with me on it. And they just like get it. And, you know, you're asking me about my companions. You know, I listed the people I'm closest to, but I've developed these really strong connections with people who I didn't even know as well. You know, like the, the guy who went skydiving with me, Rohan Mahanti, or the man who I, we ended up meeting right before we met Jimmy Carter for checking off talk with the president, which was Art Milne's my friend Adrian, who was a guy I knew in college, and he just expressed an interest in the list, and he's a photographer, so he helped me check off Ona Black Tux. You know, these these are all people who now I consider some of my good friends, and I didn't know them from Adam before doing that. And and I really think there's something about, you know, I didn't pay them for, for their okay. services, but there's something about that exchange of I'm doing something good. They were doing something good. Uh, there's some kind of authentic connection that comes in there. So how, how often do people get to experience that nowadays, right? Like, I think, I think a lot of the time people are motivated by the sim similar things to what I was thinking about when I was 25, which is, you know, how do I prove myself in the world? And, and people tend to define that by money or, or career success. So it's like, why am I going to extend myself to something that's just about doing good? Well, coming back to the list, that question about, you know, what has stretched you the most uh, that you've accomplished checking off on the list? Is there is there a particular instance? Well, I have a general theory of the list, and 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 this is actually a big part of the book, like to the point where I've wanted, I don't know how the cover of the book is going to be designed, but I've 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 envisioned somehow a horseshoe being part of it because. Uh, you know, before I embarked on this huge challenge of trying to write this book about, you know, not just about the list, but also about my life in many ways, because it is a memoir and about my father's life. 
I, I was a recapper. I was a TV recapper. That was the thing I, I love to do. So I was recapping the TV show Mad Men. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And, and, uh, one of the things I discovered while watching that show that I found really fascinating is that they almost called it the horseshoe because the, the creator of it, Matthew Weiner was very interested in what horseshoes mean as, as a luck, good luck symbol. And they actually mean two different things. And one, one position, which is what people usually associate with horseshoes being lucky is the U shape, which, you know, the U shape just means like, don't let your luck spill out, like hold it in. And then um, the upside down version of it, which is more of like an arch shape, almost like a rainbow. That's one that's more um, valued on the, in the eastern side of the world. And they believe it means luck rains down upon you, which I mean, it sounds like such an Irish Irish thing, doesn't it? Luck <laughs> rain down, rains down upon you like you'd find on a plaque somewhere mm-hmm. in Dublin. But but that really is more of like an like an eastern belief. And, you know, when I learned about this and started writing about it in the recap, I got really sucked into it too. And I remember my brother making fun of me because I was visiting him up in Salem, Massachusetts and going into these witch shops and being like, what do horseshoes mean? I was just so obsessed with it. And, you know, what I've come to understand of those two different meanings is one of them is a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more clutching about life. It's a little bit more like, you know, if I have luck, if I have opportunities, if something good happens to me, I better hold on to it. And not keep myself open to anything else, because that's really what happens. If all your focus in life is what what I get, what happens to me, you're not really thinking about other people very much, you know, and your fear of losing what you have prevents you from extending your arms to help anyone, you know, and then the upside down one is kind of terrifying, right? Because it's like, I'm willing to let go of everything that I have. Because I have so much faith that God is going to provide. I have so much faith that luck is always raining down upon me. So I think I just kind of started developing this understanding of I need to switch from that U shape to the art shape. If this is going to work, because so many of the list items are just like something horrible happens to you, you know, or, or just horribly embarrassing. You know, like when I did, when I did that LA marathon run 10 miles straight, I peed my pants for eight miles, which I never could have foreseen despite having, you know, an uh, unpredictable bladder my whole life because I'd never, that's had never happened to me before. Um, when I went skydiving, I puked all over myself in midair, you know, like just these things happen that. I know my dad would be laughing at hysterically because he just would want me to take myself less seriously. And, you know, the, the, the gift of starting to live my life on, you know, accepting that bad things are going to happen. And that doesn't mean like that's the end result. It's just a stepping stone to getting to the good. For me, that's been, you know, I really like I just need to start living as a person who is motivated to give of themselves to other people because Instead of like, as re- you know, for, for 13 years, I had struggled so much with this, what I perceived to be this unfair thing that happened to my family that my dad was, was, you know, quote unquote, taken from us. Like, that's how I think a lot of people talk about a death like this. And it's how I talked about it. And, you know, I just kind of started understanding, like, who am I to say when he was supposed to die? You know, that's not, that's not my decision to make. And I, I just developed this deep acceptance of it that this was how his life ended because I started to believe, you know, no, this is what was supposed to happen. And even though he's dead, his energy and his spirit are still very much with me and guiding me. And, you know, with so many list items, I view them as, 
how would he be doing this? What would he be thinking about this? And what tends to come to me a lot is he would just be happy to be alive. <laughs> you know, like, like he would be viewing my situation as, gosh, you're lucky. <laughs> like, like how, what a gift it is to be alive at all. So instead of viewing my life as like, oh, this terrible thing happened to me. I just have to make it through another day. You know, I just have to survive this life that, that it turns out my dad's not walking me down the aisle. That sucks. I feel horrible about it. I just have to make it through this wedding. It's like, no, that's not how you get married. <laughs> you know, your wedding's a joyful, wonderful event. You have to be present for it, you know, and I really have shifted my view of life in that way such that I just feel like, boy, I'm so lucky to be here and if I'm here, it must be for a reason. And I just want to take whatever God gave me and use it to, to help other people. You've shared a lot of highlights and all, but if there's a biggest highlight, you know, what would it, what would that be? Well, I'm trying to talk about this a little bit less lately because I feel like I go back to it so often, but you know, the other night, my husband and I were watching Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president on CNN. And both of us just agreed, like this was the highlight of our lives. <laughs> we got to meet him because I don't know if you've, if you haven't seen it yet, you, you got to check it out. Cause I mean, I was only a baby when he was president, but he's just such an amazing man. He's, he's just such a good human being. And to have even been in his presence is, is such a gift. How did that come about that you got to meet him? Well, I, I wanted to check off talk with the president and I was doing these interviews and, you know, I was on this one interview on Inside Edition on their website and a guy from Alabama emailed me because he watched it and he said, you know, if any president will do, Jimmy Carter still teach a Sunday school every week in, in uh, Plains, Georgia. And I did consider it because I thought, well, when my dad wrote talk with the president, it was 1978. So Jimmy Carter would have satisfied that goal. Like that would have, that probably is the person he had in mind when he wrote it. And, you know, I was dealing, I was in the first year of Trump's presidency and people kept kind of heckling me about, oh, is that who you're going to talk to? So I just thought, well, you know what, that, that's fine. That suffices. So I got in touch with the Carter Center. I talked to um, some of the, the press people there. You know, at first they didn't answer me. And then I just tried again. And that's one of the things I, I've learned with the list, too, is just how important it is to write letters to people. You know, a lot of times I have things that happen, like go to the Super Bowl or go to the Rose Bowl. And, and someone will say to me, oh, my God, like, how did you do that? Like, <laughs> how did you get there? How did you get tickets? It's not that hard <laughs> to get tickets to the Super Bowl, it turns out. But I think we we raise these things to these lofty levels and think it's impossible. But I just started becoming a very persistent letter writer. And, you know, someone finally did write me back. And it actually was a person who wrote me back immediately after seeing it. It's just a new person I hadn't written to before. Emily, gosh, I for, I'm forgetting her last name now. But she worked with uh, President Carter on eradicating guinea worm. Um, on a lot of his health uh, missions he was on. And she said, sure, you know, come down here. I'll give you a tour of the Carter Center. And, you know, if you want to go to hear his Sunday school lesson, call this innkeeper. She gives people pews in the inn. She buses them over there. And, you know, you're going to have to get there at 530 in the morning. And I can't guarantee that you're going to talk with him. So, you know, then I actually had a contact with someone down there 
who was a distracted driving advocate, Mandy Sorahan. And like she had a friend who uh, might have been able to, to help me to talk to him. So that was exciting. And, you know, I've had distracted driving folks help me with so many of these list items. It's really just been this amazing thing. So with, with her help, then I ended up making sure that I definitely had a seat uh, at the church, but still, you know, no hope of, of necessarily talking to him because we had discovered he didn't give interviews after doing Sunday school lessons. So we got down to Georgia and I just, you know, I had this goal of I want to climb to the top of Stone Mountain. And it's funny we're talking about this given Pikes Peak coming coming up in August. And my husband really didn't want to do it <laughs> because we had just flown down from New Jersey and he was pretty exhausted and he really had had very little sleep the night before. But um, this was the first list item we were doing where we were in a place my dad and mom had actually been to together. And I had these photographs of them standing on the top of Stone Mountain. And my dad, of course, is like holding his fist out like triumphantly, you know. So I was like, I have to recreate those photographs. So we did climb to the top of it. My husband was actually really happy that he had done it. And then we started driving down to the hotel that we got. And we really didn't get there until 11 o'clock at night, which it was a little bit treacherous driving on these like backcountry roads in Georgia where we'd never been before. So a lot of Confederate flags on the way there. And we were kind of like, where are we, you know, being Northerners and when we got there, we just, you know, again, list magic. We were at the counter of the hotel exactly at the same time as a man who had written a few books about Jimmy Carter, who knew Jimmy Carter, who was friends with Jimmy Carter, which, you know, he just seemed like a regular guy to us. So you never would have expected this. But I just struck up a conversation with him. It was so something my father would do now that I think about it. And we just started talking about Jimmy Carter and we were in the parking lot for two hours talking about it. and. This really nice guy just kept showing up everywhere we went that weekend and, and you know, talking to us more about Jimmy Carter. And then by the time we got to the church that Sunday, you know, there he was, you know, our new friend who is my, my friend Art Millen, who I was talking about earlier, just sitting there in the church, like right next to Jimmy Carter. So by the time it was over, I really just had this feeling of as we walk up there to take our picture with the president the former president, I think he might say something to me. <laughs> he might break the rule and we might have a conversation. So that was really how I did that one. You know, and I remember what I remember the most about it is he just had this like shaking his hand. He had this very soft, like large hand. And I kept thinking this is, you know, this hand created peace in the Middle East. <laughs> you know, like one of Jimmy Carter's standout characteristics is how generous he is and how friendly and he just shakes hands with everyone. So I just felt almost like this connection with history when that happened. And my dad was such like a history buff. And I mean, he majored in American studies in college. So I, I think he would have been very excited about it. And I, I remember right before we walked up to talk to Jimmy Carter, Art was standing there behind us. And he's like, you know, I've been in your shoes before and your dad is here with you today. Again, someone we had just met two days earlier. And now, you know, we're still friends. He he is a mentor for me with my writing and has helped me a great deal. You've shared a lot of lessons already that I think are, you know, poignant and pertinent for our listeners and for myself as well. I want to begin to wrap up a little bit. 
Is there a lesson that you would want to leave with our listeners uh, that maybe you haven't shared? So I guess what, what I would want people to take away from my experiences, and I hope they do when they read the book as well, is that everything, and I truly 100% believe this, I know some people will disagree with me and they'll say I'm not being considerate enough or sensitive enough, but I really do believe that everything that happens in our lives is something that God is making happen for us. I really do think that even if it looks terrible, even if it looks like you're going to suffer because of this thing that's happening to you, in some way or another, it's happening. And when I say us, I mean everybody. Maybe not this individual person, but whatever has happened to them will affect other people they're in connection with in their lives. And, you know, when I think about what happened in the Capitol last Wednesday, I read this incredible article about it the other day where they were interviewing a high school student, I think from Parkland or maybe from Sandy Hook. No, I mean, she would have been not quite high school yet, but someone who was involved in a school shooting. And she said, the one blessing that came from these capital riots is that now these lawmakers will have compassion for what we go through as children in schools. And, you know, that is such a great way to look at it because, yeah, of course they will, because now this thing has happened to them. They understand that feeling of having their lives be threatened. And I think with the coronavirus, you know, this is what I worry about that someone might say I'm being insensitive because I've been fortunate enough not to lose a family member to it myself. But while I don't understand what that experience is, I do know what it is to lose someone suddenly and tragically and how angering that is and how scary that is. But at the same time, I think the fact that we have this thing that's affecting all of us that any of us could get that no one is immune to, it's just making us care more. It's making us more compassionate about each other. And that is the ultimate goal of what we're all here to do. And I don't mean just humans, like, you know, I'm, I'm vegan and I'm very into animal rights. I mean, animals, I mean, nature. I just think this respect for life, just for the sake of respecting life, is the only way we're going to keep going forward as, as a species. And We've really been confused about, about that, I think, in general. And a lot of it comes from being, you know, patriarchal. And I just think there's a lot of selfishness we've had as a society that's been changing a lot over over the past year. And, and the history books, I think, we'll, we'll see it that way. And as scary as things have been and as scary as they get, I think we're on the verge of things getting a little bit better. And, you know, that's I guess that's what I hope that people can take away from my experiences, which is that, you know, even the scariest loss that could happen to you, like this could turn into the best thing that ever happened to you in your life. And, and I think that's what my dad would want me to feel too. I'm, I'm reminded that, uh, you know, constantly that word compassion uh, is really about the ability to suffer with each other, to walk alongside uh, each other within our suffering. And uh, I always associate the word listening with that, too, because the temptation is always to want to explain away why something is happening. I guess one of my favorite, uh, favorite phrases I like to share is that life is a mystery to be lived, not a problem to be solved. Oh, Although, I love that. You know, I really believe that if we really enter into the mystery, and you have certainly entered into the, the mystery of your dad's life, uh, and uh, learn so much uh, along the way of the mystery. But I think in entering into that mystery, if we live really live in the mystery that 
the opportunity for problem solving is going to come along because the the problems will present themselves along the way. Maybe they were there already, but uh, uh, by living the mystery, we end up discovering something new about ourselves and other people uh, as well. What's the, what's the title of your book? Have you got a title for it yet? Well, we're still working on the proposal to sell it. So I haven't even actually sold it to a publisher yet, but we did come up with a working title the other day, which is uh, my father's list, how living my dad's dream set me free. Excellent. If our listeners would like to follow your progress, uh, you have a website. What's the, what's the URL for your dad's website? Myfatherslist.com. And if you want to follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, although I have to admit I'm not a very avid Twitter user, but it's my father's list at my father's list everywhere. Okay. At my father's list, you can follow uh, Laura's journey as she continues to take on the list. Uh, I wish we could have talked about every single thing on the list, you know, but that would be a, that'd be a 60 part podcast. <laughs> we, we haven't progressed to that point. Uh, and perhaps we'll have the opportunity to, uh, to talk again. Any final thoughts? Um, well, I'm sitting here right now looking at my apple trees <laughs> on this desk because they're still in a bucket. I'm sure you, I think you've seen some of my posts about that. Um, and, and I think that has been a very different kind of list item for me. The list item he wrote was plant an apple tree, which, you know, he probably wrote that because he had already written grow a watermelon and he just thought, well, this makes sense. I want to see what that's like. Um, but I, I was thinking the other day that this is a different kind of list item because what it represents for me is putting down roots. And that's something I've never been good at. Like, you know, that's why I love that Billy Joel song, You're My Home, because it talks about home could be the Pennsylvania Turnpike. <laughs> you know, it's all about traveling. It's like home is just goes with you wherever you are. And uh, I've, I'm really at this point in my life starting to feel much more at home in who I am as a person and, and in my choices. You know, apple trees like this is something that the colonists planted when they when they moved to this country because it was meant to ensure that they were going to stick around for a little while because, you know, they take about seven years to blossom and to, to produce fruit. So, you know, I've had people ask me before, well, what are you going to do when the list is done? And I said, well, you know, I'll do my list. I'll be on to my next journey. And to me, these apple trees really represent that, that, you know, someday at least one, if not all four of these saplings I'll have in a yard somewhere. And, you know, I'll, I'll put a little plaque there with my dad's name on it. And, and it'll just, just be something where it's like, I'll feel like I've helped create something of permanence that, that will be his legacy. There's something very satisfying about feeling like even though the person is gone, they're still helping you to create you know, what their life meant. And I, I hope that my friends and friends I haven't met yet who are distracted driving awareness advocates, I hope that they, I wish for each of them that they can find a way to do that. I think it's very, very challenging if you've lost your child and they were just on the verge of, of living their whole lives out and they, they didn't get a chance to do that. But I have come to find that the grief is a lot easier if you have something you're doing like that, that feels like th that this is what this person would want. And then it's just a totally just full by joy and love. Well, it, it reminds me of uh, a line that I shared with the Rogers family uh, in our uh, January podcast, a plaque that uh, hung on the uh, kitchen wall when I was growing up that my mom put up that simply said, uh, to live in the hearts we leave behind is not to die. And uh, I think that 
you keeping uh, your dad, uh, Mick Carney, his uh, spirit uh, alive, uh, that he's very much alive in you and through the love and actions of all the people who he touched in his life and continues to touch through those people as an extension of himself. You know, Laura, I'm very grateful that you could join us for our February podcast and hopefully look forward to uh, you joining us uh, on the mountain on America's Mountain, Pikes Peak, uh, in August of uh, this year. All things, if they come together, as we hope they will, then, uh, then that'll happen. Thank you so much. I learned actually a lot doing this podcast from you. <laughs> I'd like to remind our, our listeners, uh, if you'd like to learn more about uh, Keep Kids Alive Drive 25, you can visit our website at keepkidsalivedrive25.org or kkad25.org. If you don't feel like typing out all of those words. And we'd uh, be happy to have you on board to support our mission to keep it going and growing. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time.